It is quite an honor to say that I have with me the man who is the former national Greco-Roman wrestling champion. He aspired to the heights of becoming a member of the United States Olympic wrestling team. Yes, and of course, that's the man we all know as Bob Root. And welcome back to another edition of the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And very happy holidays to all. Very Merry Christmas as we are set to begin this very special edition of Ask Bob Anything here this week. Can't wait to get into that, guys. And of course, I am your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride. Yes, indeed, it is Ask Bob Roop Anything here this week. And for the last three weeks, I've asked you guys to send in your questions and that you have. We certainly appreciate your great response, and we're going to get into as many as we can here this week on the program. But first, just a friendly reminder, guys, that you can listen to the Wrestling Stoop, along with sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, now covering 1988 in the World Wrestling Federation. And you can also listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories, guaranteed 100% territory talk each and every time out there on the show currently covering three projects on regional wrestling, including Georgia Championship Wrestling 1981 with Jamie Ward, Bill Watts' UWF in 1986 with guest Roman Gomez, and now it's Memphis Wrestling, that's right, the CWA 1985 with guests like Steve Crawford and Gene Jackson. And you can listen to all of those shows and more, all part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere. Your podcast streaming needs are met from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And while you're at it, be sure to follow us on social media, guys. You can follow Bob, actually friend Bob, over at facebook.com slash poorbobroop. Bob, no doubt, looking forward to hearing from you, as well as sharing a few of his memories. And you guys can follow me, Ray Russell. You can follow me on X, formerly the Twitter. You can follow me there at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, facebook.com slash wrestling grenade and subscribe right now to youtube.com slash wrestling grenade all sorts of goodies there to watch guys from mid-south wrestling to the memphis territory to very recently dropped six new videos from the san francisco territory 1977 the bob root booking era you guys can go check it out all sorts of great stuff there from the ukulele incident between dean ho and alexis smirnoff all the way down to pepper gomez and the ladder angle Plus, yes, three pivotal, important parts of the Bob Roop-Kevin Sullivan feud all laid out there on my YouTube, guys. So subscribe today, youtube.com slash Grenade. And last but certainly not least, especially heading into the holidays, guys, now would be a fantabulous time to become a WrestleCopia patron. Talking about that $5 all-access tier over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Yes, indeed, five bucks. Going to get you all sorts of gifts, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes for the Wrestling Memory Grenade, the Regional Wrestling Podcast, as well as Monday Warfare. 
You'll also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Then from there, it's remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show, covering the 1989 NWA project, includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. And of course, the Patreon-exclusive watch-along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription. Cancel any time. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like all the content that I offer. And the best part about it, every penny of it goes right back here into keeping the WrestleCopia Podcast Network up and running for the months and the years to come. So please, if you can, looking to support that next up-and-coming wrestling podcast brand, I'd appreciate if you could consider making it WrestleCopia. And now with all of that out of the way, time to bring the man back onto the show, just in time for Ask Bob Anything. Can't wait to get to the questions, guys. We go all the way back to the beginning of his career, all the way forward to Maya Singh, Maha Singh, and beyond. Lots of questions from all over. So let's bring him back right now. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Mr. Bob Roop. Well, thank you, Ray. Um, I'm sitting here thinking about your place with uh, having so many of your children um, there with you at an age where Christmas really, mean, you know, still means something with the idea of getting presents and that sort of thing. And, yeah. you know, it does my heart good to, to know that you're in that in that category. My boys are young men now, and, and uh, our Christmas present basically to each other is still being together uh, and owning a home together. But I'm, I'm thinking that you're going to have, you're going to have a nice holiday having, <laughs> you, have, you have some extra motivation to help <laughs> your kids behave themselves with Santa right around the corner. I get a few days a year right before Christmas where everybody wants to behave. I'll take it. Yeah. It's better than zero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 24 hours are supposed to make up 364 days of not being <laughs> the greatest. Yeah. Well, you but, know, it's the Christmas spirit, I suppose. Yeah, but no, it's uh, it's going pretty well. Lots of crazy things going on over here. Lots of uh, orchestra, band stuff at school, choir stuff at school, this and that. Mixed in with the weather, the weather decided to finally hit right when all this is going on. So just <laughs> it's a mixture of fun, as you can tell, as we head into the holidays. But uh, we're here. We made it, man. We, uh, we're almost done with the San Francisco story. But this week, it is wide open. Ask Bob anything. And Bob, the questions came in. For the last three weeks, we've got dozens of questions here. Now, I've already told everybody we're not going to be able to hit on all of them. I'm going to try to tell them in the order in which they were received for the most part. Now, a couple of questions were asked more than once, so luckily they both are going to get their answer, question answered. But other than that, man, I'm ready to roll. I just, you know, if you have anything else you want to you want to drop on us or anything at the beginning of the show, please do so. It has to do with uh, Shire coming back from a, an NWA conference in Las Vegas by this time. I had established control. I mean, he was not trying to interfere anymore, but he made one last attempt. He called me at tele in television. He called me into the, the whatever office he was in mm -hmm. and said that he had just come back from the convention. And when he talked to Eddie Graham about me uh, being his booker and had that I had told Shire that I had experience in Florida, he said, Eddie responded and said, well, that's no, that's not quite it. All Bob did was carry coffee around our office. Right. And, you know, he didn't. I, tell, I think I told I might have told this, but yeah. I'm telling you, they got some serious heat with me because 
I finally took a while, and it's amazing, it only took 50 years, but for me to figure out what Graham was doing. Graham already knew that we were doing well out there because the promoters, again, t- telephone, tell a wrestler. Speaking of telephone, so, <laughs> you got to get that. <laughs> no, 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 I'd shut it down. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when, when Shire did that, what Eddie Graham was doing was saying that they did like nine or ten shows a week. And Roy was doing, at the most, six. Eddie was, you know, Eddie's territory was about 50% bigger, you know, and and the booking job would therefore be, conversely, it would be uh, be more challenging or more, more take more work. So what he was doing was telling Roy, well, you know, your, your little territory out there, Roy, you know, um, Bob can do well. He, he, he couldn't be our booker here, but he could, you know, in fact, he just carried coffee. But out there, uh, you know, he can, I'm sure he can do well handling your territory, which was a put down of Shire. Uh, I can't imagine any of those guys liked him. Uh, I don't know how they would. Uh, maybe maybe he was a different person when he was around the other promoters, but it was a way of putting uh, putting Shire down and saying, yeah, yeah, our, our coffee guy is, is uh, qualified even just from picking up what he hears was enough for him to come out and be a successful booker for you. And that's what he was doing. And it took me a long time to figure that out. But that's why, and I wish Eddie had told me about it because I had I I had a grudge against him after that. You know, I you felt think like Eddie never thought twice about it after he made the comment though. Like it probably didn't sit with him. He was just uh, telling that to Shire. Perhaps he didn't even know it got back to you. Maybe he didn't even think about it again after he said it. You know, just having a little fun with Shire there. Yeah, I, I get what you're was. saying. It took it, it would take a, some time to kind of figure that out, but that makes that does make sense. Yeah. It's very plausible, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, yeah. I'm, in fact, I'm sure that's what he was doing. I can't think of any other reason he'd do that. Because this is not, because, you did not have a fallout with, with Eddie Graham to be, you know, so everybody else out there understands what's going on with you right now at this point in your career. You didn't really have an issue with Eddie at this point, right? No, I was okay. still, he was still basically the promoter who started me in the business. Who And I, I was the kind, I am the kind that felt, uh, a loyalty, you know, uh, so, you know, I, he, he helped me out, getting me started. And, you know, I felt gratitude and a sense of responsibility of not being, you know, some kind of bum that says, well, what, what have you done for me lately? You know, uh, right. forget you, um, <laughs> which I had a couple guys do. Um, one guy whose initials are LL started in Florida. I helped get him started and babysat him in the cars and force fed him a seminar every night for six months. And when he made it big and I saw him again, he, he wouldn't want even bother to talk to me, you know. So, um, hmm. LL got his start in Florida. I'm going to guess right around the mid 80s. I'm just guessing here, Bob. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think, think I think like, I heard a story one time of LL jumped out of a cage, ran away from Bruiser Brody once upon a time. But that's that's another story for another day. Yeah, I saw that one somehow. I don't remember how <laughs> I saw it. It was on the, on the Internet. I almost felt sorry for Luger, except he had it coming. You know, the guy would be in the dressing room, and, and Larry, Larry Foles is his real name. Larry, I'm sorry. I hope you've, you know, moved on. I, You know, these things that happen, just like every, every one of us leaves a trail behind us, it depends on what's on it. Uh, it's going to get talked about, whether it's talked about positively or negatively. But Larry or Lex, well, you got in front of a bunch of guys who made their guy their living 
by being pro wrestlers and who were busting their butt to get you over and carry you in the ring and the matches because you didn't know what you were doing, who carried you and made you look great and then let you beat them. And then in the dressing room, you say, yeah, I'm just passing, I'm just passing through wrestling. I'm using wrestling because I want to be Mr. Universe. So I'm just doing this. And while I'm still working out and I, you know, you tell the guys that are working with you that their occupation, their, their livelihood, and in many cases, their identity, their very identity is just a pastime for you. You're just using it and them to further yourself. You know, there's no way that anybody, I mean, anybody that even would say that uh, just has no perception whatsoever <laughs> of, you know, what, you're, what kind of reaction you're going to get. But, okay, I just want to clear that up about, I want to share that because that was something new for me. Right. If it's new for me, it's definitely new for everybody else. So yeah. So you you did tell the story before in regards to the coffee and all that whatnot. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you you elaborate a little more now. Now that you've had time to kind of think it over, now that you've brought it back to the forefront of your mind for you know for a couple of weeks there, you, it's pretty cool. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, again, yeah, I think thank you. I, I I agree with you. I don't think that Eddie figured Shire would come back and talk to me about it. Uh, he didn't understand what was going on. I don't think Shire would admit to him. Hey, I can't handle Roop. You know, he's doing his thing and he kind of, he, he closed the book. I gave him my book. He was supposed to do it my way. He closed the book and now it's his book and I can't even get my little finger in it. I didn't <laughs> think Eddie was uh, figured he was going to come back and try to get up, go up on me that way. Right. But anyway, I uh, just wanted to clear that up. All right. Well, we do appreciate that. And I guess it's time to roll into the questions. If you're ready to roll, Bob, we'll start off with question number one. Sounds good. All right, this is an interesting one, interesting one to start off with, but it was the first question sent in, so that's the way we're going to roll here. Question is from Stephen George from Facebook. He wrote, great show, guys. Love the mix of detailed stories mixed in with the random hilarity. Uh, appreciate that, Stephen. He says, I recently heard you tell the story, Bob, of a wrestling bear busting a fellow wrestler open. I think that was episode one or two. I had to ask if Bob ever wrestled a bear, and if he did, does he have any stories to share or if he has any stories to share in regards to behind the scenes interactions with them? Uh, I got both. And Amarillo, <laughs> again, I've been in the business uh, less than less than two years. And I saw my booking sheet. I just said bear, B-A-R. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you know, I've heard of like Tiger Jeet saying and, you know, the guys sure. with, you know, animals, with, you know, Moose, Morosky and all that. I said, who's this bear guy? And uh, they told me, well, it's not a bear guy. It's a bear. You're going to be wrestling bear. And I said, well, okay, you know, I mean, what are you going to say? No, I refuse. Well, the night, I think it was in Odessa when we, uh, I worked with the bear and I'm, I go out in the ring and the thing, they put a, like a chicken wire fence around the ring. So the bear wouldn't take off. Let me back up a little. Now, one of the things they let you do if you're going to wrestle a bear, you, you know, you could go back to where the bear was in his enclosure, his cage, or it's a big box. It's got one side that's got some open area that you can pass things through there. The trainer will give you a big bag of candy and uh, that you can go back and you can feed it. You can give it to the bear. You can unwrap the candy and, and give it to him. I mean, you don't have him take it out of your out of your hand, but you put it down on the, on the floor at the near end of the cage and he can come up and and you do that for a while, and, you know, you talk to the, because the bear, you've never seen him before, he's never seen you before. It's a way to try to introduce you. Well, the bear was, I could feel it. He was upset, 
And I found out later what had happened was the night before, and I think it was El Paso, uh, J.C. Dykes, and I think it was the Infernos he had, or maybe the Blue Demon, I'm not sure, it doesn't matter. The three of them did this gimmick where they, they pulled out these great big, like, veterinarian-type syringes and had them full of juice, and they were running around like they were going to, you know, give the bear a shot and knock him out. And in the in the process, like the two wrestlers had kind of had the bear cornered and it made him very, very nervous, you know, and they were getting themselves over. And, and uh, I think probably part of their shtick was uh, that they wouldn't even have to work with the bear because if they got him so upset uh, with the preliminaries and the if the trainer couldn't couldn't keep him under control, you know, there wasn't going to be a match. Let's put it that way. But by the same token, you gave the fans something by all the running around and everything. And probably killed, you know, not killed, but probably took 10 minutes or so. You know, they made it look like the bear was going to get them or, or whatever. So now it's 24 hours later. And I went and fed the bear three-pound bag of candy, talked to him and said, you know, hey, you know, uh, let's, let's not work real serious out there. It didn't shoot, <laughs> just you and me, you know, let's work. So I'm in the dressing room, and the matches are over. I mean, all the other matches, they waited till all the other matches were done, and this went on last. They'd been over for like a half hour. And I sent someone over there to ask what was going on. I said, well, they're having trouble getting the, getting the bear ready to go. So finally, again, after about a half hour, they got the word, okay, go on out to the ring. And I go out there. So the trainer brings the bear down to the ring. They get, they get him in the ring. Uh, one of the treats they give him is like a two-liter uh, thing of, of soda right. that, that he can drink. Now, the bear's got a muzzle on. It leaves uh, the last couple of inches of his of his mouth at the back. It leaves an open where you can stick a, a bottle in there and he can drink. He gets in the ring, and I'm just standing there. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty nervous. The bear's a, <laughs> this is a big bear. And all of a sudden, the bear just takes off. And... The referee is pulling on the chain and trying to keep him from taking off. And all of a sudden, the referee just quits doing that and goes along with him. It actually looks like he's trying to catch up to the bear. He's running with him. So they're gone. I waited <laughs> I waited 10 minutes. They didn't come back. So I, I got out and went like I was going go to go back to my dressing room. There was a way you could walk around the building. And I went over there where the gate was and, and near the other dressing room. and the referee, what had happened is the chain that he was using to pull the bear to like to keep him from running. And it had a, a, a link where you put two pieces of chain together. There's a link that uh, it, it'll open up a little bit. And what had happened is when uh, the bear was taken off and he was trying to stop him, that link through his hand and the two edges of the link are both sharp. Boy, the bear weighed about 600 pounds or 700 pounds. So with his weight and the referee trying to, the trainer trying to pull so hard, that link obviously got opened up a little bit. And while the chain was sliding through his hand, one of those sharp points went through his finger, his middle finger. And that's why when he was leaving with the bear, I said he, he quit pulling. He took off after him, looked like he was going to try to be him back to the dressing room. That's what happened when that thing went through his finger. He knew that if the bear kept pulling and he couldn't keep up, it was going to rip the end of the finger, maybe not off, but it was going to rip it out. 
So I go back in the dressing room. The referee's sitting on the floor. There's blood everywhere from this finger. The bear's uh, it's a chain back by his cage, padding back and forth from one front paw to the other, back and forth. Just the referee's white face because of the pain and and uh, and like I say, blood everywhere. We should have just canceled it right there, but you know, just said, well, offer them to give them their money back or something. No, the show had to go on. So we managed to get the chain link out of the referee, the trainer's finger. He got the bear back down there. We got the chicken wire around the cage, and we, we went, uh, oh, I don't know, five or six minutes. And it was, this bear was dangerous. He was really uh, anxious and, and nervous and, and being having all that blood around him. when And it took about another half hour. It wasn't a big house. I mean, there was probably three or 400 people there, but. Uh, they had to be have a lot of patience because from the time the last match went on until the time the bear match started, had to be at least an hour and a half. Wow. So, you know, they had to wait. Well, they want to see me get my butt kicked pretty bad. So they most of them stuck around, I think. I didn't see any, you know, there wasn't any big exodus out of there. Well, anyway, in the match with the bear, I had been trained. And, you know, I'd ask around about well, how to work with him. The trainer gave me some tips, too. Don't ever let him get you down and be on top of you because he'll he'll use that muzzle, the weight of his head behind it, and he'll he'll punch down on it. And no matter where he hits you, he's gonna bruise the heck out of you if he hits you in the he might rupture something if he hits you in the stomach or hits you in the solar plexus. It might stop your heart because you know six seven hundred pound bear, uh, even a two hundred pound bear is pretty strong. One that big has not just got the strength, but he's got a lot of weight to, to, to wield with it. So five or six minutes go by. I, I, you know, I said, well, I've done everything I can think of to do. One of them is you can use the bear. You grab the spur and you use that to pull yourself behind him or out to the side. And I had gone behind him a couple of times and I let him. He, he was trained. If you went behind him, you put your head like up on his, like, I don't know if it's called his shoulder or his haunch up by where his front paw was. He would reach back and he'd put his big paw behind your head and he'd fly and marry you. Well, I let him do it once, and I, I hit rolling, and I kept rolling, and he came right after me. He was looking forward to having me down uh, because he, he was spot on. I mean, I got back up to my feet, and uh, what I did a couple times, I climbed up on top of the top turnbuckle uh, in one of the corners and held on to the top of the, cave, the, the chicken wire, get some distance between myself and the bear because if, even if I stood on the apron, with that fence right behind me, he could still get at me. So finally, after, I don't know, say five minutes, it seemed like an eternity, I got a headlock on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and took him over. I mean, I, I had to hold a fur with both hands. I took him over onto his back. He immediately tried to get his back paws up underneath me to, like, kick me off. And I had him, by the, again, around his head and one of his big arms, big I don't know if bears are called arms or not, but he was spinning around on his shoulders and I was spinning with him because I didn't want him to get those back paws anywhere near me. And I told the referee, I said, I, I could see that his shoulders were down. I said, count him down. I said, he's down. I, I pinned the bear. I said, count him down. And he wouldn't do it. So I just got up and uh, jumped up on top of the turnbuckle and jumped out of there. And, uh, and, and went ahead and I got, I think the referee counted me out. Is there, is there a referee named Nick Charles? No, that's not it either. So 
that should be it except for this. Uh, the next day, uh, when I got up in the morning, my eye was irritated. I mean, to the point where I'm blank, just blinking, blink, 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 blink. Mm-hmm. I found a place where I could walk into an optometrist or an eye doctor. And one of the, I think it was one of the bear's whiskers or hair somewhere. They had pretty stiff hair had gotten in and punctured a hole in my, in my eye. And, you know, just a little bitty one. It wasn't leaking or anything, but it, it was irritated. And so I got it and that cost me 45 bucks. And the, yeah, the doctor appointment cost me 45. And then I think they paid me 35 to wrestle the bear. So, uh, it was a losing proposition, but yeah, when I went back to the back and it was kind of dark back there, when I went back there to see what was holding up the bear and the trainer, what a sight blood everywhere. The bears, you know, pacing back and forth and making this uh, uh, noise. I thought, oh, my God, I don't want to go anywhere near this bear. But the local promoter, I think if it was, I think it was uh, Nick Kozak. I can't remember who it was, but. I think it was Pat O'Dowdy. Um, you know, they wanted to give the people, he didn't want, definitely didn't want to give their money back. So he insisted that we went ahead and go ahead and do the, do the finish. So, yeah, that's, that's the extent of my bear story. Wow. Uh, that's uh, one more time than I've wrestled a bear. I got to say that much. I've seen it. You know, there's certainly footage out there, a few of them. And I always see the gimmick of the bear drinking the Coke bottle either uh, during or after the matchup to get the little treat after after they've uh, done their job in there. But man, uh, do you remember, were you paid anything more than what you would have been paid for a normal matchup in a situation like that? No. Wow. All right. No. So you just, you come in there, you're not alerted. Nobody gave you a heads up a week ahead. of uh, You weren't told until that day. They were working the bear, or was were you giving a heads up at all? I think we picked up our our bookings at television on Saturday. Okay, and I saw it on Saturday. It was for the following <laughs> two, following Tuesday night. Hey Terry, yeah, who's I, this bear guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you whatever they book you with. I book myself with, you know, little little people wrestlers with. Sure. Uh, big ones like Haystack Calhoun and people like that. Yeah, but you can communicate so, with those guys, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and after a matter of fact, speaking, yes, you can. You're not always speaking the same language, so right. Uh, oh, if, man. A guy's, if a guy's got a gimmick, uh, the only language he's talking is his gimmick. Yeah. He's not talking about your what you're going to do. All he's talking about is protecting his own gimmick. Well, for like example, if you were against a big guy or some, say some guy who's gimmick is he's super strong. He, he's not going to let you get him down and put, keep him in a hold for like 10 minutes. He shouldn't, if he's got any sense. Right. And if I was a booker, I'd make sure that no, everybody understood that, you know, you don't do that. You'll kill the guy. If you do that, you'll kill. I mean, he looks like he can tear you in, in, in two with the, with these and you're holding him down for 10 minutes, you know? No. Right. So the same thing like with Andre, we talked about Andre was never supposed to go off his feet. That's why uh, McMahon Sr., when he gave him the new gimmick, said, quit doing those drop kicks. Andre did drop kicks, head scissors, all kinds of stuff. He said, quit doing all that stuff because uh, I don't want you going off your feet. You're now the immovable object. So, all right. It certainly worked. Well, we appreciate it. Question one down. Bob Roop did, in fact, wrestle a bear. And I was you were, I was trying to think of some of the trainers, some of the wrestling bears that travel around with the trainers. Would, would the name happen, the trainer uh, happened to have been Nick Adams? I think that might have Nick been. Nick Adams. That's it. Is that right? Okay. That's it. Yeah, it was Nick. I said Nick Charles. I had half of it. Yeah, Nick 
Nick Adams. That was who it was. Okay. You know, later, I'm not sure it was the same bear, but one of his bears killed his wife. Oh, really? I, I remember hearing that. I didn't remember who that was, uh, whichever, you know, whichever traveling bear that was. So very interesting. Hopefully well, it wasn't I'm, the same I, one. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do we hear? We're laughing. A couple of macabre guys. Well, uh, well, the, you know, that's a, that's a risk you take. You gotta understand, you know, got you got an animal that's been wild for, you know, I don't know how long bear's been around, but and now it's even if it's born in captivity, of course, uh, it's still got all those years of being wild in it and yeah. it's all, all its instincts, all its programmed, its genetic makeup is uh you know, is hunting and having prey and right. all this sort of things. And so I wasn't surprised to hear it. I was sad to hear it. I don't want anybody getting hurt or killed. But if you leave something around that's you know so so dangerous like that, uh, the possibility that eventually it might come back to to harm you is is always there. We'll go on. We got another question here, Bob. Got a lot more questions. Uh, this one comes all the way from Jolly Old England. They still call it that. It's John Crowfoot. He says, "Greetings, gentlemen. Firstly, I'd like to just say what a fantastic podcast you have. It's essential listening with a and a weekly highlight. Great stuff." John says, I first discovered Bob in the Mid-South Wrestling episodes that aired here in the UK, and I was hugely impressed straight away. On that note, did Bob ever wrestle over here in the UK? If so, what were his experiences? If not, what did Bob think of any British guys that he worked with over in the United States? Many thank yous for considering my question and keep up the great work. All the best, John in the English countryside. Wow, what a nice letter. Um, They're always yeah, so proper I over there. I had to get this in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that we're being watched all over the world, or at least parts of it, or listened to, let's just say. Yeah, I I, I knew uh, Lord Alfred Hayes I met in Texas when he first started. Uh, Tony Charles and um, Les Sarton, uh, I think in both I met in Florida for the first time. And I didn't see Tony anywhere else, but I saw Les at various other places over the next 25, 30 years. Billy Robinson, I, he worked down there for a while. I uh, ran into him in the 72 Olympics at Munich. Didn't meet him. I just ran into him. Uh, but uh, <laughs> And then when I wrestled over there, I was looking up some of the uh, background this morning on a, a, a site, Wrestling Stats. Uh, it's, a great, it's got a bunch of great stuff in it. I saw that uh, the three matches it had, I wrestled in Sheffield. Uh, against Steve Haggerty, that was on 9-20-1972. And Steve's the one that went to Baghdad with me twice. So this is what was great about working over there. Two months later, I worked against Albert Wall uh, in Kingston. And then three weeks later, I worked in Aberdeen and then in Sheffield against a Scottish wrestler named Andy Robbins. And all the matches were were noteworthy in a way because the English style was very rigid compared to what we were doing in this country. I'm not sure everywhere in the world. Uh, Germany was a little more open than, than England. But if you do something in England, like uh, say you punch the referee, the promoters don't, won't do it. Uh, but you, you will, you, the wrestler will get suspended for like a couple of years. Uh, if you did something like if you smacked a referee with a chair, you might go to jail. So, you know, getting heat over there 
was simple, was easy because no, absolutely no punching allowed. So all you had to do, all I had to do to get a ton of heat, I, I mean, you got as much heat as I doused a guy in gasoline and set him on fire, was to punch the guy, get the referee behind my opponent. And when he does, I always did it where I was down on my knees and my opponent was beating the crap out of me. I mean, was, was uh, working on a hold of some kind. And all I did was punch the guy in the stomach. And I'm telling you, a couple of theaters, uh, the ring would be on the stage and there'd be some chairs up there. But the majority, like uh, 98% of the audience would sit out in the, below the stage. When I did that, about three quarters of the women in the, sitting up on the stage, and it's always older women. I never saw a young woman or a girl or um, even a middle age. These were all older women. I mean, uh, about half of them brought umbrellas, even on a sunny day. And I said, why, why are they bringing umbrellas? They said, well, you'll find out. And the reason they brought them was that they wanted to whack you with them. So um, you get heat for punching someone, but it's okay to whack people with umbrellas. All right. Well, <laughs> you know that old saying, Ray, if it's okay if I do it. No, you can't do it, but it's okay if I do it. Um, yeah, so, you know, I had old women um, in dresses with their coats still on, pocketbooks still uh, hanging from their arm, climbing in the ring to whack me with, with her umbrella. And I enjoyed that because most of the wrestlers didn't use that kind of thing. I, and I think usually, I, I usually think, I think I normally was getting beat. I know I didn't make a big deal out of I had to win my matches over there because, you know, I was, I was glad just to get a payday. Most of the year of 1972, uh, I was set up Baghdad a little bit. When I got back from my first trip to Baghdad, I worked about another three weeks and then my bookings were done. And I didn't take any more bookings for a while because I had been so rattled by what happened in Baghdad that I didn't want to, I didn't want to get back in the ring. Right. So, so taking these shows in England, uh, you know, my savings were, I didn't have a lot of savings, but we weren't spending a lot of money, but I needed some income. So taking these bookings uh, was kind of a necessity, but I always asked to be on shows where uh, it was a stage rather than being out in an arena where, you're surrounded on all four sides. Because if you're on a stage, you know, and say everybody in the uh, audience starts climbing, you know, standing on chairs, climbing up onto the on the stage to get you, well, then you can take off and go back to your dressing room and yeah, crawl gonna, out was, a window or something. I was going to say, but, A, you could probably see them coming, and B, there's always that, that one direction in which you can run, if, if need be. I know what Sam Steamboat said, but hell with it, man. If I got 100 umbrellas coming at me, I might have to get the hell out of Dodge. It's like you said, well, there's, there's a window somewhere. <laughs> yeah right well we had one in scotland that was with andy robbins i don't know if he's scottish or not but he was over there uh he was their champion and uh, you know all you had to do i think one match i lost by dq was by punching him where the referee saw me and i got dq'd uh and he won the match but that didn't satisfy the fans we did a show where the english promoter the same promoter that booked and took me to Iraq for Adnan Casey and Saddam Hussein. Uh, George Rowisco, he was a promoter for the shows I worked. And when we were in, now to get up to Scotland, we would leave, get on a bus, all the wrestlers and the referee and equipment and stuff, we'd get on a, a maybe they rented it, I don't know, but it was, it was, uh, it was private. They had their own driver uh, who wasn't like a regular bus driver. So we'd go up to Scotland 
and work a couple shows and then and then come back on the bus. And it was in a way it was kind of fun. So the guys would have a great sense of humor. Uh, so the English boys, oh, are they fun? Uh, real fun. You could. I I was uh, in England. They have middleweights. They have guys weighed 165 pounds. And I mean, even Tony Charles and Lord Alfred Hayes, those guys didn't weigh more than 200 pounds at that. So they weren't real big guys, but they were. You know, most of them were athletes. They were in good shape. So for them. The style was a lot of wrestling, back and forth holds and all that. I wasn't, I mean, I was okay with that, but not their level. And they, they had learned to work with each other where you knew what the guy was going to do. Almost, uh, there was only, every every move would have maybe one or two possible responses. And they could kind of read each other. They didn't have to talk or anything. I, I said it last week, I, or, or in the past, one of our programs, about seeing Billy Robinson, who I thought was a mediocre worker, uh, against Tony Charles, who I thought Tony was great, but he and Billy together, they had, a, I'm telling you, one of the best matches I've ever seen for just wrestling. It didn't have the kind of drama to it. Now, if they were, if they were wrestling for the world championship, it would have, but it was just a work of art. It was just beautiful. Now these guys were able to do it so well that there was always action. There was always move, counter move to where they keep people, they kept people's attention. And they told a story. Anyway, we're up in England or in Scotland, and Rawisco is, is the promoter, and he wants to do a finish. I'm with Andy Robbins. He w- wanted me to do the finish of the because they were going to come back in a couple of weeks for a rematch of me and Robbins. So uh, he wanted me to punch him and, and have the referee see it. And uh, I said, George, uh, you've been around the business a long time. I'm fairly new, but I said, how are you going to get, how are you going to get these people to leave? I said, you know, if we do that, I said, you're not really giving them anything for a finish. You know, you're not giving them much satisfaction. I said, he can beat me up a little bit before we, before, but see again, he couldn't make a comeback where he's punching me and all that because punching was illegal under Commonwealth, you know, Commonwealth rules. So, uh, you know, he could throw me in, whip, give me a backdrop and slam me and, you know, whatever, hit me with a fine knee or, or drop kick and all that. But without getting the win on top of that, they weren't going to be very satisfied. So Ravisco said, oh, don't worry about that. He said, um, uh, I know these people. He said, I'll talk to them. Believe me, they'll go home. So we did the finish. And uh, I'm down there. I got my boots off. I'm getting ready to take a shower. Ravisco comes down. And he says, uh, uh, Bob, uh, you're going to have to go back up there. And I said, why? He said, they won't leave. I said, well... <laughs> I don't care. Let me back up. Hitting him, uh, hitting him, punching him, and taking off immediately. I don't mean waiting around like I talked about with uh, McGinnis in the, you know, with the chair held high overhead for three, 30 seconds. I mean, I punched him and took off, and I still just barely got out of there. A lot of these women, particular theater, had load seats on the side. Uh, well, all these old, a lot, not all of them, but most of those seats are filled with these old ladies with their canes. So I hit him and I took off. I went through the tunnel between those two seats on my side and the heel side at about two feet off the ground. I was almost crawling because they were trying to whack me with their umbrellas. So, you know, yeah, and I knew pretty fast for some old ladies, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when they got a target in mind anyway. So, yeah. 
I said, well, no, George, I don't want to. And uh, he said, he said, well, wait a minute. He said, by the way, he said, your girlfriend's drunk. I said, what? He said, your girlfriend's drunk. Uh, I said, I don't think so. So he he talked to me. He said, okay, I'm going to go out and try again to get him to go home. Uh, so my girlfriend, Debbie, came in. She wasn't drunk. I said, what? Well, let's go. Just said you're you're drunk. What did you What did you say to him? She said. Uh, he, she said I knew that that you know as well as you did that finish wasn't going to work. And she said I told him I'm pissed off because he can't get these people to leave. Well, in English language, being pissed means being drunk. So when she said I'm pissed off, he thought she was saying I'm drunk, or she was drunk. So uh, we worked out another finish where. Uh, he still didn't want to beat me because we were coming back in two weeks. So we did this one where he's got me in a hole and just about ready. I'm just about ready to give up. And a wrestler named Mal Kirk, M-A-L, Mal, ran through and smacked Andy. And I took off again. And I crawled through that place with the elevated seats at that time. But I needn't, I, I needn't have worried. They were all going to go after Mal. They wanted to kill Mal. And here's what happened. Mal, we set this up, and Rawisco forgot to unlock the door on the babyface side. And so when when I, Mal ran over there and grabbed the door to you know to exit and get away from all these people, it was locked. So the poor poor guy, he got whacked about fifty times. Oh man, he had poked, he had big bruises where people poked him with the end of the umbrellas. <laughs> he had to fight it, you know, knock knock old ladies down. <laughs> poor guy. What a beating he took. So we had to wait, uh, I don't think, about three hours for everybody to leave. Uh, I don't remember if he called the police or not to get him out of there. Yeah, and it wasn't, it, I, ne I never saw one male in the ring in England. I mean, it's a spectator. Always women, old women, grandma, at least grandma type, maybe a few great grandmas. Uh, <laughs> always, always, they could have been. Could have been 90 outside and hot inside. They could have been in a bikini, but they were still going to be bringing that umbrella. So, yeah, you had to look out for it. Wow. Sounds like some fun times all around the uh, the globe, man. Uh, you worked for George Rolwisko. That's pretty cool. I, d I haven't heard his name in a long time when I did a lot of studying of the world of sport over there. Um, yeah, he, he, and, uh, you talk, I think you said, what was it? Andy Robin. Yeah. I think he was Scottish. He used to wear a kilt anyway. I don't know that that yes. makes you Scottish yeah. because Roddy Piper did the same thing, but, um, yep. you know, I think, you know, that ties into the wrestling bear thing too. Cause if I remember correctly, Andy, Andy Robin, eventually he trained a wrestling bear named Hercules and actually brought him over here and used him in a lot of Disney movies and things. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of cool. It all tied in together there, <laughs> but, oh, good. uh, Oh man, I, I look forward. Like we should just do an entire episode on your your ventures over there in the UK because it sounds like you got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, and and I'm sure we can even elaborate a little more on some of the guys over here. I want to keep things rolling though, Bob, just because there's so many questions here. But um, I hope that answers of some of the questions. I love those names. If he was looking for blast from the past names, we got them here. I, I loved it. So uh, we'll continue on, and we will revisit that, guys. So have no fear. We'll talk more about the UK uh, in the weeks and months to come. But for right now, we'll move on to the next question as one of our patrons, Ben, he sent in a question before we even announced the Ask Bob episode. He actually sent this like a day or two before the show went out where I announced it. And I said, Ben, and it's so funny, too, because it was the same show that you told that Bahamas story with Mr. Saito. And he asked me before the show came out, can Bob tell 
a story about the Bahamas. This is actually what he wrote here. He said, I recently read Bahamian Rhapsody, uh, a book by Ian Douglas. It's about the history of wrestling in the Bahamas. He said, I'd highly recommend it if you haven't read it already. Now, I have not read it yet, Ben, but I plan to because it sounds pretty damn cool. But he wrote here, he said, if you get the chance, could you please ask Bob if he has any memories of wrestling there? Now, that was before you told the Saito story. But now you've told the Saito story, so I asked you the other day, I said, do you think you might be able to shed an, share another Bahamas story here for this episode of the show? Um, yeah, there's, I, I think I mentioned, uh, but it's worth mentioning again, because uh, on one show in Freeport with a rain delay and everybody else had already worked and left and went back to the hotel, Andre the Giant and I shared a dressing room for about a half hour by ourselves. Very, very difficult to get Andre alone when he's working. Mm-hmm. Because he, you know, he's like a magnet. He just draws people, and you know, he's got people around him all the time. And uh, so that was nice. I felt honored to do that. I always really respected Andre, and what a price he had to pay for what he did. Uh, never having privacy, you know, he ended up buying a I don't know two hundred acre big big farm or yeah, ranch, yeah, and uh, in order to have some privacy, you know. But um, that was one. Another one is. I don't know if it's tasteless or not. Maybe let me tell it and figure it out. Remember, remember, <laughs> the, word, remember the word tasteless. We were, we were wrestling. Lex Luger was wrestling. It doesn't matter who he's wrestling with. And let me, let me also set this up. The glamour. That, now, doesn't that sound glamorous? You're going to the Bahamas, to Nassau, Absolutely. to a free board. Having a great Paradise time. Right? <laughs> well, you're going, yes, to see the Caribbean. Yes, you're going to, it's going to be so exciting and exalting. You're going to just be wonderful. Well, every year, uh, there'd be a season where they didn't have wrestling in uh, Nassau. And the place where they had the wrestling, just, I don't know what, what they did with it. But, the, but when we came back to start the year that year, apparently they had been sweeping all the trash, the, uh, paper cups, uh, napkins, uh, plasticware, uh, dust, dirt, toilet paper, whatever, had been sweeping in into the dressing room. So, and but thankfully they just swept it to one side. But I'm talking <laughs> about it's piled all the way up to the ceiling, uh, and it's Ugh. about an eight foot ceiling. And no, you didn't see any rats or cockroaches or anything. But that how that's how glamorous it was. You know, where you're in that dressing room changing out, and you know you're just you're like part of the trash. The water in Nassau, I'm not sure about Freeport, but Nassau, the water, they don't turn it off, but about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, they're not going to have access to water much longer. People start filling up pots, whatever, uh, pitchers, whatever with water, uh, so they'll have it. They haven't been parched all night with not having any water. So we could get in there at, like, say, 7.30. We could get in the dressing room. And go in the bathroom. Now this dressing room sink looked like, uh, oh, uh, about three dozen uh, Hell's Angels, you know, come in there and uh, who knows what did what in the sink. But uh, it was filthy. And But it did have water. Now to drink, uh, not my advice, but at least you had water, you know, to, you know, you could put some on a cloth and wipe yourself off if you've been bleeding or whatever. But it usually, like I say, it's, it just runs out. There's no more water, and they have to wait for the basin, whatever it is, the reservoir, wherever they collect the water to be, to pump out, they have to wait for it to refill. Luger was against, it doesn't matter who he was with, he might have been against Tyree Pride. He, he, 
he might have been. That's always a good uh, chance. <laughs> yeah, if Tyree was Tyree Drew over there, you know what do yeah. you say? Uh, he was didn't mean anything in the states uh, north of uh, Miami and Fort Lauderdale, but and and Nassau, well, he spoke the language, so he could right. make interviews. And I'm not sure he spoke Bahamian, but he had a patois that's got French and Portuguese based in it that he could get an interview across what he was going to talk about. Right. So now they not only have chicken wire over the ring. I talked about that part. Yeah. But they also have chicken wire. And there's seats on both sides, but especially on this heel side uh, where fans can sit. And those are also chicken wired off. They have chicken wire so that you can walk between them. There's two on, one on each side of the aisle that you go back to the dressing room. You can walk between them without anybody reaching over and whacking you with their purse with a brick in it. Or, you know, I don't, <laughs> think, I don't think I ever saw anybody with an umbrella down there. But Luger, we're on our way back, and I'm behind Luger, which was great because I got to see it. And this woman, a uh, Bahamian woman, uh, she's got a big, like a big gulp, the super-sized container, and she uh, winds up and as Luger's going by, he says something, yeah, he's, he's still kind of green. So he's going, yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I beat your guy. And sploosh, she splashed him right in the face. Apparently, it was a, with a yellowish liquid that had a little suds on top. And I was thinking, well, that woman, I, you know, those beers cost about five bucks a piece down here. I can't believe she threw her beer away. Well, if it was beer, <laughs> it was beer that had been recycled. <laughs> it was... It was, it was now urine. Yeah, oh. she threw a big, big cup of piss right in his, pardon my language, <laughs> right in his face. And he had his mouth open at the time, too. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. So he races back into, races in the back, ran right through that pile of trash, you know, to get to the bathroom. And uh, uh, he goes, he turns on the, turn on the water. There's no water. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. Holy. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, I felt so bad for him until later, later on. Now, see, Barry, I felt bad about that, Larry, if you're listening. But, you know, I didn't think anybody deserved that. But, you know, later on, remember how you treated me when you were making 800 grand a year and I was just, you know, like a road agent? Right. Uh, you acted like you wouldn't even give me your autograph if I was dying for it. So, um, uh, yeah, I, these stories come up. I just have to report them. You know, you got to be, you, you know, we need to share that history. And we already talked about uh, uh, you taking off from from uh, Bruiser Brody. I can't say I blame you. You know, uh, Frank Goodish, Bruiser Brody, might have heard about Luger's comments about wrestling just being a stepping stone for him. You know, he was just going to give us his presence until he became Mr. Universe. And, you know, guys didn't like that. You know, I mean, we're no, I, I busting it. our butt on the road every day, you know, 360 days or not 360, but maybe 320 days a year you're on the road. And, uh, you know, you got a guy who says, no, I'm, no, I'm not serious about this. Meanwhile, you're there trying to wash the blood out of your hair that you just engendered working with him, you know, and there he is saying, no, nah, you know, he's not, he's not bleeding. He's, he's barely broken a sweat. You made him look like a million dollars. He's telling you, no, I said, I'm going to uh, be used to Mr. Universe. And then maybe I'll give you guys my autograph then. Wow. But, yeah, uh, probably the only Mr. Universe had that happen to uh, have a cup of piss thrown in his face anyway, I guess. Maybe. Well, again, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry it happened, but I don't know. I, I do believe in karma. 
Well, yeah, I don't you know, know. I mean, yeah, by but... all accounts, I mean, Lex may even, I don't think he would say he deserved that, but Lex may even say some of the, you know, things that, you know, came around during certain periods of his career may have been instigated by his personality at the time. You know, Lex has, for a long time now, you know, he had a lot of addictions he battled, you know, in the later part of WCW. He got over those and he uh, had all those health issues, obviously, now. And, um, but he seems to be good, you know, good with the Lord and good with himself. And, uh, you know, all those guys that, that preach and say they found God and stuff, I, it's very hard to believe any of them. But if anybody did, whether you believe in God or not, I think Lex Luger's found peace in himself. And he's a, it appears, and it's not like a one or two year thing, it appears for well over a decade now that he's a changed person. And, and I, unfortunately, it took a lot of terrible things to happen to him to get him to, you know, get him to that stage. But at least he's there. He seems very peaceful in himself and with others. Well, I'm glad you told me that, Ray, and I'll tell you why. I, first of all, I'm very happy if that's the case. He's listening to the better angels of his nature now. But it also justifies what I'm doing and talking about that because the guy I'm talking about that time, he deserved that. He deserved that cup of piss in the face. <laughs> he did. <laughs> I wasn't on the road with him for six months straight. I can only imagine. So yeah, there's a, there's I mean, a lot of he, fans out there, Lex Luger fans, that are probably getting a little pissed off right now. But they got to remember, and there's nobody going to deny the stories that are out there. I don't even think Lex denies the stories that are out there of the ego and some of the things that went along with that. I mean, you listen to, like, Bruce Pritchard, who who dealt with Lex just briefly there in his WWF run. So the, the stories are out there. There's dozens and dozens of them. I get it. Unfortunately, a lot of the fans, they didn't have to deal with all of that. So even though they hear that and they know that, they really don't get it unless they were, again, like you said, riding in the car with them. And this is early Lex Luger you're talking about here. Like, what, 85, 86 Lex Luger before he even went to Crockett, I guess. And then you see him again a few years later when you go and work up there in the uh, WCW with Ole. Right. So well, those, those uh, are peak years, I'd say. So <laughs> I can yeah. see why you're saying what you're saying. Well, you know, uh, bodybuilders, and uh, believe me, I'm not being derogatory. The guys that build themselves up so humongously, I mean, the amount of work that takes, I admire the effort. I'm not sure I, may, I admire the goal, especially if it ends up being, you know, really bad for your health. I know that when I saw Paul Orndorff, shortly before he passed away, I hadn't seen a picture or anything. I hadn't been looking for it, but I hadn't seen a picture or anything of him for 25, 30 years. I was just absolutely stunned at the way he looked. He looked horrible. I mean, a poor guy, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think near the end, too, he had Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever. It may have been the CTE. I don't really know, but I know Paul wasn't really Paul by the end there, and he did look, you know, those pictures that were posted. There was a lot of people giving his family a lot of uh, flack for even posting some of those pictures because uh, it just didn't put Paul in a, a positive light as far as how he looked uh, physically. It just, it was sad to see. Well, again, uh, we'll get to Paul. We, we got some time for Paul right. somewhere down the line, but uh, with Lex, uh, again, the things that did happen to him, he had it coming and now he doesn't. And I hope his life is better now. Is it and fair to say that even though Lex, you know, by a lot of people's admission, he had things coming, was it fair to say that Lex didn't realize maybe at the time that he had these things coming? <laughs> uh, you know, that's saying all the world's a stage, you know, but when people stand on a stage, sometimes even though it's a one-man play and maybe it's like a soliloquy or whatever, mm -hmm. but usually there's somebody else on the cast 
And there's all the people out behind the scenes, the gappers, the, the makeup artists, the quote, you know, all the things that got you out on that stage. Now, if you if you've got a half a dozen or in a, like in a wrestling card, you've got 12 to 15 to 18 people, fellow performers that are on that stage with you, then you shouldn't be acting like you're on the stage alone. Uh, like you wouldn't just step on their lines. Right. Not without having JYD do something about it. <laughs> so, um, and Lex always, at the time, Larry struck me as someone who saw himself at the center of his world uh, and nobody else was on the stage, just him. And that's very, you know, having that the mindset is very, very, very difficult for you when things start getting hard and tough and you need a shoulder to cry on or at least somebody to talk to, somebody who cares about you. Now, I want to back up one second. and I want to repeat this, and I'll do this on a regular basis. These are not criticisms on leveling. These are facts. These are things that happen. I have been dealt my own share of payback for my inadequacies. You know, I paid the bill myself. I haven't been, I don't know if you're lucky or not. Uh, some of the people that apparently don't pay their bills end up hanging themselves. You know, somebody who's super successful, rich, famous, whatever, they hung themselves. Why? Well, maybe they didn't get what they were looking for and the price they paid in terms of not having a family that cares about them or anybody else who cares about them. Get to a stage in life where you might say, you look back and say, oh, my God, you see the path that you've been on a whole, your whole life has been down towards the, the dark side of the horse. But um, I'm not I'm not moralizing or passing judgment here. These things happen. And because of the way that, that Lex was at the time, uh, he deserved to have something like that. Because what that does is that brings you back to reality that you're just another person like everybody else. Right. You, 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 uh, you know, you're just the same as me. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, if you're the super whatever, right? You're not going to be the one getting the cup of pee in the face. It's going to. You would duck, and Bob would get it. Yeah, yeah. That you know, life has a way of. And believe me, I, I'm sure I got. I might have some some beatings coming from stuff I did in my lifetime. Now, not lately. I made a promise when my uh, my second son Ryan was born. I was going to clean up my act and keep it clean, and uh, and I have. Um, it doesn't mean that something from, you know, from my distant past, but when I wasn't so squeaky clean, it might not come back to bite me. But if it does, I accept it. You know, I mean, that's what happens. But again, I don't want you, any of you out there. First of all, Lex Luger built up a fantastic body. It took a lot of work. Now, uh, he did shortcut. And he's lucky that might be some of the health problems he had. Uh, the Road Warriors, great guys. I loved them. And they, but they took the, the serious shortcuts, and both of them passed on very early. Uh, Hawk was only 42, and Joe, or the animal, uh, was only uh, 60. And I consider I'm 80. Well, I'm 81. Right. I consider 60 young. I mean, it's not sprout young. It's not he's like a boy. You're not a senior citizen, really, yet. Again, these criticisms that don't have a ha 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 with them, even if we do chuckle. But it's not done out of malice or, or meanness. Uh, I'm glad to hear that, that Larry Full, Lex Luger, is doing well. I wish, him, I wish you the best, Lex, if you're listening to this. Anybody you see him, please pass it on. I, I, hope, I hope you have the best for you. Well, that's a very cool deal. Um, so you told a story from the Bahamas that was clearly from the mid-'80s there. Florida's still uh, 
rolling down to the Bahama Territory at the time. You talked about Tyree Pride and things. So we're going to stick with the mid-80s just for a second. Our very next question, it's actually sent in from two different listeners here, Craig Brinkley and Chris Tipton. Uh, Craig wrote in, this is how he ordered it. He said, when and where did Bob get his head shaved to do the Maha Sing, the Maya Sing angle in Florida? Now, Chris, a little more elaborate here in his questioning, he said, Dear Ray, just wanted to let you guys know that I love the show and all the great info that I've been learning. My question is this. When Bob was in Florida doing his run as Maya Singh, how did the head and beard shaving come into play? Whose idea was it? And what did you do when you had to go to the store or out for dinner? Of course, because for those who don't know, Bob had half of his head shaved. I think you had half a beard too, but pretty much going anywhere must have been difficult, asked Chris. Uh, he says, thank you again for your answer, and thanks you, Bob and Ray, for a great show. Happy holidays. Thank you, Chris, for writing in. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, uh, Kevin Sullivan had the idea for the for the Ameha Singh angle, and uh, he he talked to me about uh, working with him, and but the idea was, uh, and you know, the proof is in the pudding of what I look like. Meha was supposed to be not just Meha Singh. That was the guy with the shaved head. And I tried to tan half my body, just side, right down the middle, the middle of my face, all the way down to my my left leg would be tan, my right leg wouldn't. To look like a and uh, like Meha, like an Indian uh, from a, that kind of background. And you know, people say, well, what what would make you think that you would do that if you, well, if I really was possessed? by this guy, Meha, or whatever. My alter ego is so strong, he believes he's an Indian. You know, he's of Indian uh, stock. I don't mean a Native American. I mean, like, India. Then, mentally, you know, he thinks, mentally, he thinks his left leg and arm should be brown, because, you know, he's a Meha Singh. And that's what we did, is we went to Knoxville from, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. We went to a place where Kevin had the ability to, to tape it, and he, Nancy, uh, the girl that married, what was it, Benoit? Yeah, Nancy Sullivan. Yeah, Nancy was with Kevin then. And uh, kind of the way it worked was I was going to get, we were going to give the impression that I was besotted with Nancy. I was just uh, head over heels with uh, lust or whatever. And she was, she'd kind of been able to get me to do her, her bidding. So she shaved it. Uh, okay, so Nancy, Nancy was shaved. the one that shaved her head. Okay. <laughs> Nancy shaved it. Yeah, Nancy shaved it. And yes, I did when I went in public. Now, the Road Warriors, when they went out after the matches, they had, both had the bandana type uh, head, head on their head. Right. They, they covered those haircuts. I didn't I didn't do that. I, I went with, uh, I mean, half my face was blonde beard on the left side and mustache and nothing on the right. <laughs> right. Now, the way that gimmick, it could have been the best gimmick ever, ever, being two people. And, I mean, that person changed, you changed back and forth. Uh, you know, they've done it in the movies a few times. So I've never seen it done in a wrestling ring. Right. Where, you know, Mayha's got the board out. He pulled it out of the, you know, ripped up the ring and pulled up the board. And he's about to, you know, shove it down somebody's throat. And all of a sudden, Bob appears on the scene and stops and takes the board away from Meha and throws it away, but you see where you could go with that. Oh yeah, there's I mean, tons of different ways you can go. With oh, that. it would have been the greatest gimmick ever. Well, we got down to Florida, and uh, Kevin just somehow forgot to uh, implement that. 
Uh, uh, I never, I never had a chance to do any interviews. And you kind of, how are you going to? Maya Sarah, uh, that Maya Singh character kind of just became another. I uh, forgive me of the term, but like stooge for the Army of Darkness. You never really. Got I to, agree. Yeah, you never really got to. Man, what a what an amazing. And th- that was Kevin Sullivan's pitch to you. That's what uh, the Bob Roop, the Maya Singh character was going to be. Was what you were just describing. That was Kevin Sullivan's idea. Yeah. And then you get down yeah, there, I, and I, it's a no go. Yeah, we oh. we went down there and. Uh, we're all staying. A, Kevin had a friend who had a condo apartment on uh, Daytona Beach, and Mark Lewin, myself, Kevin, and Nancy were all staying there. And I took it for about I don't know three or four days, and I couldn't I couldn't handle it. Uh, just I didn't know him very well, and just the, a lot of drugs. Uh, not that I was you know really white myself, but you know it was like drugs for breakfast to go to the gym. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't quite my, my shtick. So, no, don't get me wrong. I wasn't pure as a driven snow. Uh, I was doing my own abusing myself. But um, so I, I went I went to uh, Tampa and got a, a motel. And then Len Denton, uh, the grappler, mm-hmm. working there, he's getting ready to leave. So he let me take over his apartment. Very, very convenient. I brought my wife down. Well, we weren't married yet, but I brought her down. She, so we set up there. And then. Uh, the Neha Singh gimmick never got developed. Now I thought I thought back. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, but I'm going to repeat one more time. Wouldn't change one thing, because if I did, my beautiful son is sitting across the hall from me who helped me get set up to do this interview. Repeatedly does it, and I should know how to do it myself by now. <laughs> but um, because I have him to do it, um, I, I don't bother. Uh, I wouldn't have him. So. No, I don't want anything any different. I mean, I'm, I regret some of the things that happened. That I did. I mean, I didn't murder anybody, or you know, you know, I I did my share of crappy things. Usually, I hurt myself more than anybody else. But so again, I'm not passing judgment here. I mean, I, I I'm willing to judge myself. What you're usually judging yourself for, you already paid the penalty because that's what you're judging. You talked about guys having problems. Paul, for example, Paul Orndorff having problems with, you know, now what causes problems? I'm not saying that was taking uh, supplements to build those kind of bodies. I know with the road warriors it was because I, I saw them in action. And I like those guys. I really like the heck out of them. Because like I said, I lived with Hawk for a month. What a great guy. But they were doing, they were doing steroids heavy. And I'm not talking about loading up a syringe, a big one, not a little bitty one. A big one with a CC of four different things in it, and shooting each other. And you know, I don't know if that went on every day, but you know, you're talking about some serious. And and I I don't know exactly what it was, but uh, I know that at least some of it was illegal because they were b- being very secretive about it. And I happened to be with with uh, Lex one time when he picked up some steroids. All right. So uh, you keep mentioning the Road Warriors. So I ex- this question is actually a couple more questions down. So I feel like we should just bump it up here to kind of continue to elaborate here. Uh, I got a question here from a lady by the name of Tina. Uh, Tina asks, Bob, she said, I recall seeing you in the Georgia wrestling territory in the early 1980s, somewhere around the time that the Road Warriors got their start. She does believe you were in the Georgia Territory at some point at the same time as Hawk and Animal. She wanted to know your early memories of meeting the Road Warriors when they were green, and uh, I guess just kind of if you have a, a fun story to share. For some reason, I'm thinking Florida with them. Of course not, it wasn't. 
Oh, it was, it was in Atlanta, and Ole had, uh, he lived, he's from Minnesota. He'd gone back from the, up to Minnesota. He went up there for a day or two, and there was a guy that had a school up there. I can't think of his name, but uh, Ole went by to see him, and Hawk and Animal were both there. And Hawk had already, or Animal had already had, had already had a year in the business, and then he, he wasn't having much success. It wasn't working out for him, so he quit and, I don't know, went back to bodybuilding or whatever. Well, anyway, Ole brought him down. Now, they didn't have the haircuts yet. Bill Watts came in for some reason to see Ole, or I don't know why he was there, maybe to schmooze with Ted Turner. I don't know. But um, he's, uh, he's the one that came up with the idea of the haircuts. And we put him out there, and uh, it was like instant, just instant acceptance. They were just so over immediately. Because they were legitimate. I mean, those are not, uh, those muscles are real. <laughs> those, and, le those were legitimate right hands and clotheslines they were throwing when they debuted, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, not only that, but they were both, they were doing steroids, you know, and so they were, had mood, mood changes, you know, they got mad and they, oh, they just, oh my God, being on the road with those guys, oh, I was a road warrior, you know, I mean, just <laughs> fighting to stay on the road. They would work their gimmick when they were out in public. And I, I tried to tell them, look, guys, you don't have to do that. I said, just don't say anything. Animal, you, you look pissed off when you wake up in the morning. I said, why don't you, you know, just stand there in the line and whatever and just glower like, you know, like you smell something terrible. And Hawk, you can just do the same thing, growl or something. I said, you guys don't have to start acting like you're going to fight each other. We've chased up everybody out of the store, or out of the bar or wherever. Yeah, but anytime we went out to eat or, or got something to eat, everything I got had a cover or wrapper on it and wasn't opened yet. Because usually by the time they'd ordered something, they had insulted the, the waiter or the chef, oh. uh, the whole place, everybody in the place three or four times. I wasn't going to touch anything they ordered. I had no idea what might be in it. And I always waited till they finished. I'd say, huh, you know, I wonder, I wonder what they put in your steak. You know, they, they might have cleaned a toilet with your steak before they put <laughs> it on the grill. Oh. So, yeah, they, they didn't appreciate that very much. But, but you know, that was, uh, those were heady times. and. I tell you, uh, one time at a, an Omni show, uh, I was, again, working with Ole in office. So I went into the one of the dressing rooms. Now, now at the Omni, they've got the, the Atlanta Hawks basketball team is based there. So they have a great big dressing room. So Hawk and Animal were down there with Don Jardine and doesn't matter. And I went in there and they're, they're on the floor and Animal's got a front face lock on Hawk. And they're not, neither one of them are moving. I mean, they're both of them are bulked, bulged up. You can see, I mean, the veins are all popped out. You can see them and fighting. You know, I immediately threw down my book, you know, whatever I was carrying. I said, okay, what are you guys, what are you guys doing? Are you crazy? Get, get up. What are you doing? They, you know, eventually they did. And, uh, <laughs> no, I take it back. They didn't the first time. So I, I went down and got Oli. I couldn't fire him. I mean, we weren't going to fire him, but I couldn't <laughs> right. even threaten Right. So I went down, I got Ole, I said, hey, there's your two monsters down there. So they're locked up and, you know, they're going to be like going to kill one another. So he went down there and they, when he yelled at him, you know, he, he has that authority anyway. Uh, they broke it up. I said, well, what's the problem? I said, what's the beef? Now, Hawk told me later when I roomed with him, because Joe uh, Laurinaitis uh, had the, that's the animal, had the a uh, year in the business before Hawk did. He had yeah. like a year's experience. Right. He would always make an opinion that, about how they should do something. And he would like throw in an extra half a vote for his opinion. 
because that guy had that half year because of the, he had that year of work experience. Right. Hawk just got tired of it. You know, he said, now they've been together. They've been working now for maybe six months or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it'd been a year. I don't, I'm not sure. You know, Hawk was tired of how he was having to defer. I don't know. Half hour later, I went back down there for something and they're, they're back in it. They're on the floor on their knees, both of them on front face lock. I yelled at Jardine and I, who else was there? But a couple of guys in there, I yelled at them. I said, come on, guys, what what are you doing letting them watch this? You know, you know better than that. Break them up. And Jardine said, well, he broke them up 10 times. So, so, and I knew, I knew that uh, that was very, very likely. So, you know, they were, they were interesting guys. You know, they weren't your typical guys that sure. come in and don't have a clue. You talk about starting on top. I mean, you know, within a month, right. they were probably making, you know, top dollar in the territory, you know, right. more than guys that have been in the business for 20 years. So, and, you right know, place, they had, right time, right look, right gimmick, just everything perfect, uh, perfectly worked out there for them. Uh, they come in initially in biker gear, sort of jean vests and all that, just, just a couple of weeks. And then they, then they bust out the the leather, the spikes, the steel, the face paint, things of that nature. You were talking about the haircuts, and it just it just worked. And I, I heard this story a long time ago that um it, when Ole, you were talking about Oli going up there and finding them, I think Eddie Sharkey was the one that trained. That's them. it, Sharkey um, School. Yeah, he brings them down uh, to form a tag team because his original team that was going to be pegged for this spot, and I'm not saying they would have ever gotten over at this level, but it was Matt Bourne and Arn Anderson. And uh, Bourne had to skip town for reasons uh, that are out there, if anybody wants to Google it. <laughs> and so the team was no more. And Ole was left without a top heel tag team. And he goes and finds these two, well, I don't want to call them muscle heads because, well, even though they're gone, I'm, I'm still afraid. But Hawk and Animal, man, what a career. That's really all I can say about that. But fun story, the Road Warriors basically trying to, to get at one another. And I'm sure that happened more than just that one time that you saw. <laughs> but the, it's just funny. I, thank God they got Paul Ellering. To, I, I feel bad for Paul now that you tell that story, how often he had to get in between these two and kind of just keep their cooler heads prevail, so to speak. Because by all accounts, Ellering was technically really their manager. He made sure they got from place A to place B anyway. Yeah, uh, Paul is a, Paul's a class act. He's a good guy. Uh, always, uh, uh, if he's not a multimillionaire, I'd be surprised. Uh, he was always studying the stock market and watching the TV for the stock reports. And I think that he had some bad luck with his own work. He kept getting hurt. Yes. I had a great often. body. He had a great body, good worker, but he just kept getting hurt before you could actually do anything with him to make him a big star. That actually happened. I didn't mean to cut you off, Bob, but I just wanted to point that out the okay. reason. The reason I want everybody to know why you can speak for that was Bill Watts. Gave, and he must have really saw something in Ellering beyond just the body. Because Bill Watts kept trying to give Ellering that push when you were there. It was during that period, 81, 82 in the Mid-South. And every time Ellering came back, he'd get a couple of vignettes done. They'd do a couple of workout videos or something. And then he'd get hurt again. And it happened two or yeah. three times before, you know. But eventually, yeah. we know he goes on to become a manager. I didn't mean to cut you off, though. So you can continue. Oh, no, don't worry. No. No, we're in this together. Uh, uh, no, I, I know you, you, you want a good product here. So feel free. Yeah, and I, I think Paul, I know he made good money. I'm sure he got what whatever they got, he was getting the same amount. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, like I say, he was a class act. Always, uh, when I think about him, he's a guy that I hope realized his dreams and, and has done well for himself because, he, like I say, he was always a 
always a good guy, and not just to me, but to everybody. He was, uh, he never, I never say a bad word about anybody, and, and he was intelligent, nice, fun, but fun to be around, good sense of humor. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Paul was able to do that, but, uh, yeah, to make, make the good money like that. Yeah, the Road Warriors, uh, oh, just funny things. Remember, we were doing a, we were doing a pay-per-view, I think it's, yeah, at the Omni, were set up to go. They were supposed to come to the ring, but somebody had screwed up. And the pay-per-views are timed. You know, you you can't stop and start the cameras. They go right. straight through. They were supposed to be on the way to the ring. Somebody had forgotten their music. And they wouldn't come to the ring, so they got their music. So it was like five minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wow. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm like the liaison. I'm a trained producer, the guy and the technician who's taping and running everything and the, the dressing room. So... Yeah, getting them out there. But, you know, I, I got to hand it to them. You know, that's their gimmick. Uh, you're going to protect it or go along with, you know, whatever other other people's mistakes. They were real characters and, and, and fun guys. You know, you can be in this age, my age now and be able to look back as you see that people do, you know, have to pay for what they, including me. But, I mean, they have to pay for choices they made. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Hawk for Hawk to to pass away at 42 is just what a shame because you know he was a good guy. You know, he had his demons like we all do, but you know he wasn't ever. I didn't see him being cruel and nasty to people. And uh, now they were, they did their gimmick, but they uh, they didn't ever come out of character out in public and you know start kissing babies and all that stuff. But good guys, very cool. All right, Bob, we're going to move on here. Got another question from Jason Ward. He has a question for Bob. He says, he says, did the opportunity to wrestle for Don Owen up in the Portland Territory ever come up during your days wrestling for the territories? Well, I'm sorry to say that it didn't. Well, not too sorry. Uh, I, would, I think I would have liked it, though. I heard all these good things about Don. and um, my, my concern was the weather. Yeah. Again, I, I the most cockamamie uh, motivations for my my entire wrestling career oh, had nothing to do with money. It had nothing to do with uh, fame. Uh, it had what it had to do with was being able to travel and being and being in warm weather. I grew up in Michigan. In fact, I'm I'm looking out my window. I'm in Michigan right now. I'm looking out my window. There's snow on the ground, uh, and that's not the end of the world, but. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy a, a temperate climate. You get old, stiff like I am. and So that might have been another reason why I never even thought about going up there to Don. I can look back and say, you know, why didn't I think of that? Uh, why didn't I think about just going from San Francisco to L.A. and work? I was already over a little bit there. I was over enough, let's put it this way, that when I left Roy, I was booked in a single main event well, and I'm sure it wasn't a single main event. I was booked in a main event in a single match, me against Andre the Giant in Los Angeles. So obviously the um, the TV had to be going in there. I mean, I can't imagine they would just, you know. Book you against Andre, right. Well, yeah, without having some kind yeah, of. Notoriety uh, of some sort. I guess yeah, what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, being over a little bit. And uh, Shire nixed that by getting the athletic commission to. Uh, oh, yeah, that's uh, coming. <laughs> yeah. That's coming. Yeah, I was okay. wondering if that was all true. Apparently so. So I'm looking forward when we get to the closing moments, the San Francisco story then. Yeah, very, very interesting okay. indeed. 
Um, so we'll go on. Got another question here. This one may be uh, a simple one. A junkyard dog fan, 1972, writes in. He says, as a kid, I grew up in the Mid-South Territory, and I absolutely hated you, Bob, after you turned heel in the fall of 81. But as I grew older, I learned you were merely doing a great job of playing the heel. Back when Bill Watts would often refer to an off-air character named Charlie Lay, which we never saw on Mid-South TV, me and my friends at, at school would joke that Charlie Lay was a pseudonym for Watts himself. Now imagine my surprise when I got older and learned via the internet that Charlie Lay was a real person who apparently worked the Florida office. He asks, was he ever a wrestler? What was his job in the Florida territory? And what this, what this gentleman's referring to is, Bill Watts would often refer to the off-air character, Charlie Lay, kind of as the president of Mid-South Sports. We never saw him, but he talked about him all the time. And I, I, I kind of chuckle here because I, too, you know, when I first heard these uh, back in the tape trading days, back in the 1990s, I was like, who is this Charlie Lay guy? There was no internet for me to go Google him. So I, too, wondered if, if he was even le a legitimate person. So I kind of laughed when I saw this question. But, you know, come to find out, yes, he was, and he did work in that Florida office, but I, I don't even know exactly what his job title was there. Do you remember working with Charlie Lay at all? Charlie was uh, the receptionist at the snake pad. Okay. He was, uh, he had a little, it was a little ante room about, no, about six feet long and about four <laughs> feet wide. Okay. And he had a little, he had a little bitty uh, uh, desk back there. And uh, when people came in, he, uh, you know, he saw asked what they want. He also handed out paychecks. He handed out bookings every month. You could find out where uh, where you were booked. I was just curious. I was just, uh, I didn't know. Do you think when, and you probably didn't really pay attention when you were there in the Mid-South Territory, but Watts would often use Charlie Lay's name as an authority figure. He would throw down the mandates and things of that nature. So I was curious, would you, knowing Bill Watts, do you think that was just like a rib using Charlie Lay's name in that, in that shape? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I maybe he and it was buddies with Charlie or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not sure why Bill did that. Uh, I don't know if Charlie would be almost anonymous. Yeah, he was and he was a good guy. He uh, he was back there for Yano. He was back there for years and years and years. Uh, he was had to be there every day by probably nine o'clock, eight thirty, nine o'clock, and stay there till you know it was closing time. You know he saw and heard it all. Uh, he knew what was going on backwards for it. He'd be, he would have been a great guy to interview about uh, championship wrestling from Florida. Well, I know he used to wrestle, but that was probably, he probably retired before you even broke in or at least shortly before, because I think if I remember correctly, when I was looking stuff up about him years ago, I think he started in the thirties. So he probably finished up at least somewhere in the 1960s. I'd have to think, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, yeah. Cute. <laughs> So this gentleman asked yeah, the question, was, but I, I mean, it kind of answered it for me as well. You know, Charlie, Charlie was, he was a good guy. He, he had this joke, you know, they had a little town near Tampa called Web City. And, you know, he say, oh, you know where Web City is? And say, no, it's around here somewhere. He said, no, it's about a quarter inch up a spider's butt. As he <laughs> thought that was his idea of funny, you know, and you go, ah, okay. <laughs> All righty. Well, yeah. <laughs> I laughed at it, but probably for all the wrong reasons. So yes, we'll yeah. roll on. It's, uh, it's so bad. Yeah. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Nick, last name withheld per his request. He says, I want to thank both you, Ray and Bob for making this podcast happen. I have sorted and sifted through many wrestling podcasts and I'm barely able to make it through one episode of many of them. 
You guys are now on my very short subscription list and must-listen wrestling podcasts every week, along with Jim Cornette and Eric Bischoff. Even though you guys tell us the plans for every show, there's always extra stories to keep us guessing where things are going next. He says, okay, now that I'm done kissing up, I have a question. All right, Nick. (laughs) He says, seeing as though I enjoy both your and Jim Cornette's podcast, Bob, I was curious, did you ever have a chance to work with Jim Cornette in a promotion at the same time as Jim was there? And what did you think of him as a manager and overall his mind for the business? I think he's, uh, I think he's uh, <laughs> pretty darn good. I think he, he has made more out of the business or taken the business and made more out of himself with it than uh, 90%, 98% of the people of the wrestlers. I did work with him on a show where he was managing. I don't remember who he was managing, but would you happen to know what anybody, would you happen to know, Ray, did, did he ever manage uh, the guy that went on to become the undertaker? No, oh, that was Paul, Paul that was Heyman. Paul, yeah. That was Paul Heyman. Yeah. During you, a match. He are had you talking about when you were an agent? Because he was, uh, at that point he was yeah. managing uh, the Midnight yeah. Express, Bob Eaton and, and Stan Lane. Okay. Uh, yeah. He had to whack somebody with a cane and, it always turned out the guy, you know, you whack with it. And the guy had it coming, but uh, it always turns out the guy's got a pacemaker or plate in his head or some crap like that. And, you know, which is, you know, if it's true, it's, uh, you know, it is it's bad. But, you know, I mean, he wasn't just discriminately, indiscriminately walking around and just smacking people. Uh, but I had to talk to him about it, and, and I got heat. You know, I got heat with him. He was hot at me. He said, what do you expect me to do? He said, uh, I'm not going to let the guy beat me up. We that was our only time we I ever match ever worked with him or 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 card, and so uh, but I mean I don't have any hard feelings from that I don't blame him. Uh, all I knew was that you know when you get you get screams about lawsuits and stuff that you know it puts you right in the middle between everybody the the person the building and the promotion um, that pays your salary. Yeah, that was it. But I admire what Cornette has done. He's uh very enterprising man, taking all the things that he does uh, to draw interest to himself and his ideas, his plans. And I think he's probably making a very, very good living at it. So, no, and I, you know, I admire him. Uh, he was promoting, I think, for a while in Tennessee, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, the uh, Knoxville Territory. Amazing part that. Of the, <laughs> I think we have a, a history background in Knoxville, Tennessee. I thought yeah. he was working uh, promoting up there for a yeah, while. Smoky Mountain. So Jeb Cornette is, uh, he's a good guy. And, uh, let's put it this way. I don't know him well enough to say he's a good guy, but I haven't heard anybody talking about him being in kind of deviant or anything. And, and I admire his work. He's, uh, he's done well for himself. All the, all the, every wrestler out there could have done. I mean, I, I could have done it myself of collecting your at least your own memorabilia, but you know, collecting everybody's right. programs and, you know, articles and he certainly preserved uh, history. And, you know, I love when he goes back, that. uh, you have it, uh, Jimmy Valiant in his school in, in Virginia, it's about, uh, 15 miles from the town. I was born Christiansburg, Virginia. Jimmy's got pictures of, in his wrestling studio where he gives lessons. He's got pictures of, oh, five, 600 guys up oh, there. Wow. Wow. And, uh, you know, he's using that too. Cornette's one of the guys, you know, the wrestling business does not have a happy ending for everybody. A lot of the guys that uh, got out of it were diminished by what happened to it. 
in the sense that maybe they lost their family or, you know, they missed out on their kids growing up, that their health that we talked about. And you could, supposedly you get older and wiser looking back and saying, well, I wasted my life doing that or chasing that rainbow down the road uh, all that long where they end up being either, you know, addicted to drugs or alcoholic or whatever. And there's, unfortunately, there's too many cases like that that, that are out there. That's a shame. But um, Jim Cornette's not one of them. And so I'm, I'm happy for him that way. Yeah, I know. It's certainly one of the greatest talkers and one of the greatest managers in the history of the business. All right, Bob, going to move on to the next question. This one from Roland Stafford. He says, after trying to run San Francisco and then competing in Knoxville, you still wind up the champion for Bill Watts in the Mid-South Territory and then spend like another three years in Georgia and then another year in Florida. It's a testament that you can't blackball anyone in wrestling that brings something to the table or has talent. Roland's question is, knowing that you had made a play for territories in the past, when Bill Watts hired you, was there ever a conversation or understanding with the Cowboy that he knew of your past, but liked your work anyway? Uh, yeah, Bill knew what was going on. What he said about it was, he didn't care. What he said about it was that I lost one of my best years of my career uh, with very little income, which was true. And... I, you know, I was at prime. I was in my prime then. I could have had a, say, I'd been with Bill. I could have maybe had a year and made 60, 70 grand, which was big money back then, uh, before contracts. And, uh, you know, these, uh, you got people like Ted Turner signing up people. Nobody ever said much about it. The boys, the wrestlers themselves, uh, they're not going to talk about it because they know that they they knew, and I don't know what the playground's like today, but they knew they weren't going to ever, ever do anything about it. They weren't going to try to unionize. That's why, uh, you know, that again, that was a motive, not in California, but in Knoxville was to have the basis of starting a, a union for wrestlers. Every, every wrestler that other than our little group was willing to work against us, their, their own potential best interest rather than, you know, face up to the wrath. No, I think the black, I think the black ball st story is something that's talked about by the promoters. Uh, you know, if you do this, you'll never work again. No, if you can make money, I mean, think about it. Sam Shepard gets out of prison for murdering his wife and immediately gets signed up by a wrestling promoter. There's almost nothing. And that had nothing know, to do with his wrestling talent either. <laughs> that was just publicity. Yeah, well, he didn't He, he didn't know how to wrestle. He <laughs> right. You know, he, I, I, I've read that he was one of the worst, if you want to call him, wrestlers of all time, as far as in ring goes. So uh, clearly, all publicity there to draw in some money, and uh, that's just hey, man. Promoters come from the carnival days, and it was all about you know selling that sideshow, if you want, if you want to call it that. And that's kind of what oh, the yeah. Sam Shepard or, uh, ordeal was, anyway. But yeah, it's just so funny. People talk about you being blackballed, but it's like, wait a minute. But you worked for Bill Watts and Ole Anderson, two of the most gruff promoters of all time if anybody gave a shit i guess they would have been having some issues with it but you worked for Oli forever you worked for watts there for for an, for a year over a year straight and uh yeah so it's kind of interesting how the stories go and then of course all the keyboard warriors in the internet days who just have they, they, they care more than the wrestlers and the promoters of the era did uh it, it would seem but it's just kind of interesting there I, it was a good question i thought i wanted to make sure we got that one in bob uh let me interrupt sure. you just for a second please yeah uh, I just had a thought as you said that Watts and Ole. 
both those guys were salty guys. Uh, I don't know if Bill had a lot of amateur wrestling. I know Ole did. Uh, he wrestled it in college. And so I think the fact that I had the amateur background and I had credentials, I think that they still had respect for me. Right. Even though I, I had tried to go opposition and all that. And they certainly had no respect for, for Roy Shires. I mean, they, you know, they knew what kind of guy he was. And they, I don't know how much they had for Ron Fuller. Uh, the fact that Ron Fuller might have like created a disaster by uh, letting something like that happen, where if the whole country had joined in and all those promoters had lost their businesses because uh, there were unions, there was a union for wrestling, uh, Ron Fuller would have been the guy that got blackballed for everything because, you know, he's the one that gave away the candy store. All right. Fair enough. We'll be getting to that in the early part of next year, guys, so stay tuned. Boy, are we going to get into that very deep. Uh, we're going to try to get a couple more questions in here, a little running a little long, but that's all right. It's the holidays and having some fun here. Lots of different questions from different eras. As Carl Bauer writes in, he says, I love the segments where you bring up old wrestlers that we may not know a lot about and share your memories. I hope you guys keep that in the format moving forward. This may be a bit of a weird question, but here goes, Bob. He says, do you have any interesting stories of Haystacks, Calhoun, or even more importantly, the McGuire twins? He said, did you ever wrestle or share a locker room with them? Did you witness them using handlers to aid them in showering or other common daily routines that they weren't able to do on their own? What an interesting uh, question. And for those who don't is. know, Benny and Billy McGuire, they're the famous uh, twins, the, the largest twins in the world. They were in the Guinness Book forever, the picture of them on those little motorcycles. That's who the McGuire twins were. Yeah, they were at a show in El Paso for Funk Senior. Or maybe it was Gore Guerrero was promoting that. Well, you know, I'm not Gore sure. was the one that trained them. So, wow, that must have been very early in their, their yeah. run. Yeah, and they what they did is they were in a dressing room. I don't remember being introduced or if I introduced myself to them. Probably not. They were not in the business yet, so they might have been kind of off to I remember what, what it was like when I started. It was like everybody, all the other guys were like being in the military and you're a civilian uh, where you're not a worker yet. But all they did is they, he had them go down to the ring and I don't think they even got in the ring. I think they walked around the ring and then they walked back. Now they were in like a movie theater type place, the building there. And so the, you know how the aisle is a little bit graduated, you know, it's, it goes down, it slopes down at about, I don't know, 15 degree angle. Mm -hmm. So they had to, they had to walk uphill for about 30 yards. By the time they got back in the dressing room, both of them were panting. I'm just talking gasping. Just, <laughs> uh, 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 like they'd run a mile, you know, and that was just from walking walking out to the ring and back. I don't know. Maybe they were excited or, you know, they were uh, tense or whatever from <laughs> idea. Maybe, but Maybe they weren't in ring shape yet. Yeah. I, I kid and, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no. They were, they were, they were, we were, we're just talking about it with Sam Shepard. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, we'll get into this with Haystacks in a minute, but it wasn't that I disapproved. It's just that I didn't see the value of, it wasn't of interest to me because my gimmick or my rationale, my philosophy was to go in the ring and tell a story, both what you do, you know, I mean, it would, Sometimes it's a short story. Sometimes it's a long story, but you tell a story. So I looked at guys like that were extraordinary in some sense of being like 
great big like or or tall or or little little people that I don't want to offend any of the little folks out there because you know the the rustling the ring is all good and everything but I mean it there's it's not mainstream let's put it that way this it, it's, it's like the gimmick is what's selling not in fact it, and with the little people that is it it's it, it's a gimmick that's selling they're a spectacle they're they're something that you're going to be seen because they're different and that doesn't that's not bad i mean that's a good thing i'm glad they can do that and make a living and all that but as far as me i'm talking about my mindset back then when i looked at them i didn't see much worth in terms of uh, took me 13 years of amateur wrestling three years in the army and you know a lot of work and whatever to get to where i was and I saw guys who were to get to the same place just about just for how they looked, not for anything they'd done. And now that's an, that's an absolutely ignorant attitude about pro wrestling. It just happened to be how I was still green. I've only been in business a couple of years. So, I mean, I didn't look down on them. I didn't think they were, you know, horrible and that they should, you know, I didn't have anything. The business is what, the business is what it is. I mean, you know, over there in Texas, there are a lot of Lucci Libre around there, and there are always guys with masks who could do all kinds of stuff that we didn't do, backflips and, you know, all kinds of acrobatics and things. And that was completely different and something I couldn't do. I did, to me, didn't really tell a story of a contest. Uh, I was trying to make the matches seem as much of a shoot as I could without, you know, just grinding everything to a halt, grabbing a hold and holding onto it for 20 minutes, but uh, that it was serious. And so, Shall I go right over to Haystacks? Sure, yeah. If you got a Haystacks story, we have time. We were working at Port Pierce. It was me and, uh, couldn't have been Frank Hickey, but against Haystacks and I think Sonny King. And so I was, again, young in the business, fairly green. And I did a little routine when I got in the ring. I would, just like you did as an, an amateur wrestler, you're loosening up. You just dance, you're hopping from one foot to the other and, like shaking your arms, you're, you know, and like loosening up. Right. And, and all of a sudden, you know, and I, I wouldn't, I was looking around at the audience or whatever. I mean, it wasn't a big house and there wasn't, you know, nobody was, I didn't have the kind of heat that anybody was going to be screaming anything at me, I don't think. But uh, all of a sudden the ring is, you know, as I'm jiggling up and down, the ring's coming back up to meet me. And I look across, turn around and look across the ring and Haystacks is imitating me. <laughs> he's jumping up, he's jumping up and down. And of course, he's weighing 450, 500 pounds, whatever he weighed. And, uh, the, you know, their whole rank shaking. And I, I didn't know, I didn't know what to think. And I want to think about it now. I don't know why he did that. You know, well, why would you do that? You know, I mean, uh, I'm not trying to make a fool out of him. Come, I didn't come out there with a basketball under my jacket, you know, uh, pretend I was a big slob. Uh, so I never did understand that. I didn't like, I didn't enjoy working with, I enjoyed I enjoyed working with little people, uh, especially the girls. Uh, we had a lot of fun. I got beat, I, I got beat by little people. I mean, they were the ones that actually, I got beat by the regular wrestler on the other side, but the little person got to get the pen for Sure, right. You know, stand at my head and put, the, put their foot up on my chest before I get counted down. I enjoyed doing that, you know, because it was, it was places where we were just putting on a show, not going out there and like when you're doing when you're doing angles, you're going with the against somebody. You're gonna if you want to have a program going with them, you might want to go with them for six months. 
you know, you're talking about maybe 20 shows in a row. If you start out with clowning and gimmicks and all that, where do you go? Where do you go from there? That was my my reaction to, uh, and, and the other thing was, these guys were incredibly hard to work with, uh, you know, and the, my philosophy of how to work. And so was Dusty. So was Jimmy. I love Jimmy Valiant, but I hated working with Jimmy. You know, I mean, I didn't want to, I couldn't take him and ground him and, you know, put him down, grab a brisk lock, have him down on his face for 10 minutes, you know, kill his gimmick. So you kind of have, you have, here's what it is. I don't like it because it takes away my options of what I can do. Right. And you talked about every wrestler, even though you're more of the uh, consummate uh, professional wrestler, uh, still you talk about being comfortable within your gimmick and working your gimmick. And it's hard to do with guys like that, I'd imagine. But, um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting. I was curious, you know, I'm sure you had to have had run-ins with Haystacks. I know he referees one of your matches in San Francisco at some point. I think also he was looking for uh, some oddball stories. Maybe he saw some weird shenanigans going on with these guys based on their size and things. There's stories of, I don't know if you ever saw Yokozuna when he was in the WWF, got up to well over 600 pounds. The story was that, Mr. Fuji wasn't just his manager, but he actually had to bathe Yoko, wipe his ass and things. So I guess maybe the uh, the re- the listener here was kind of looking for stories like that as well. How did they shower? Just weird things like that. I guess that's why he says it's a bit of a weird question. But uh, your experiences were just kind of dealing with them and, and not really, I wouldn't say not getting along with them, but just, just uh, not conflict of uh, styles in the ring, so to speak, especially since you were across the ring from Haystacks and Certainly by the 70s, Calhoun was not the wrestler he was in the 50s. There's footage out there. You know, for his size back in the 1950s, he could move around. Even to, I even saw him take a bump over the top rope to the floor and get up, you know, without, without issue, which was amazing. I, just, I didn't believe that was a – yeah, and, uh, but that was the yeah. 50s, and we're talking the 1970s by this point. And the footage that's out there of Haystacks, at least from the WWF's point of view in the 70s, does very little, comes in, does the splash. There's matches where he doesn't tag in at all. And I just feel like, you know, I don't think he was necessarily phoning it in. I just don't know how much he could do because, you know, a few few years later, you hear tell he got his leg amputated, you know, so. Yeah. Well, the business changed. It was changing to where, uh, you know, like Van Van Bigelow was big, but not, not morbidly obese, but he was right. I don't know, 100, 100 pounds overweight. But he could do all kinds of stuff, oh jump up God. the top rope. Plus, he was unbelievable yeah. guy that size. I mean, I, you know, I admire guys like that. But see, Haystacks didn't do anything like that. What are you going to do with him? Only thing you can do is pound on him because you can't grab a hold. Will you get him down on his back and grab a leg hold? Do you grab him, get him down on one knee and grab an arm hold? Right. Uh, it makes no sense. So, you know, uh, I didn't like matches where what I could do was limited. It was limited by the the gimmick, whatever, of the person I was working with. That's why I hated working with Dusty. You know, if Dusty had been smart, he would have worked a gimmick with someone like me that, like Valentine did with Jack Briscoe, where he gets the guy grounded, you know, and hold him. And people start believing it's real. And then you know, I start doing really horrible, nasty stuff to him. But, you know, uh, I mean, I couldn't do that every match, but uh, it was one time. Uh, have it on tape and show it and, and have Dusty go out there. Maybe the way I get it started is I blast him with brass knucks or something. And then I hold him. He keeps trying to get up, but he's still staggered from the, he, he should be bleeding. 
Uh, and then I managed to hold him down. Finally, when he recovers after 15, 20 minutes, then he, then I take off or something. But, you know, you can work a program that way. But uh, I saw a picture on Facebook of Johnny Valentine uh, just this morning or yesterday morning. And, uh, and he, uh, he looked great. But, you know, I remember the matches. Jenny Graham strongly suggested, almost insisted, that I watch Valentine in action. I, I watched I saw the psychology. I can see him doing that with Jack Briscoe. I don't, I don't see him doing it with Dusty Rhodes. Would have been interesting to see him work. I don't know if Dusty would have ever wanted to be booked with Johnny because of his gimmick. He wants, yeah, and I don't think Dusty wanted to work 20, 25, 35-minute matches either. Yeah, Haystacks, I don't know if it was him. It was one of the big guys. It might have been, uh, what was the other guy? The guy in Charlotte uh, had the big gimmick. Um they had a deal in they had a deal on Amarillo, a uh, steakhouse. They had a seventy-two ounce steak, uh, baked potato and salad and a drink. If you could eat it, the whole thing, it was free. Right. And this guy went out and ate two of them. Man Mountain, not Man Mountain. Uh, Klondike, Klondike Bill. Klondike Bill. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he ate two of them. Uh, I wasn't there, but just what I heard anyway. Yeah, I've heard uh, some from uh, interesting stories about the lifestyle of Klondike Bill outside of the business. <laughs> that's that's well, <laughs> pretty. Yeah, well, let me think. Seventy ounces. Uh, that's uh, twelve. Twelve. Twelve pounds of steak. Jeez, oh, twelve man. pounds of steak. Oh my God! Twelve wow. pounds. That'll give wow. you gout. I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. Well, we're a little all over the place there. Very, uh, very fun way to wrap that question up. Let's get one more in here, Bob, before we finish out the show, if you have the time. Of course. Okay. So here we go. Henry Goodson, you are the last listener to get a question in on the first Ask Bob Anything. But don't fear, guys. Plenty of questions left over, which means Ask Bob 2 going to be coming somewhere down the line. So stay tuned for your questions to be answered. But for now, Henry Goodson writes, he says, thanks for sharing and educating us all on the facts of your time in San Francisco. Looking forward to hearing the final piece of that story. He goes on here, he says, After you left the Mid-South, you soon ended up in Georgia, working for Ole Anderson, and it seemed like you stayed there until Jim Crockett took over TBS. He goes on to say, It looked like Crockett kept guys like you and Buzz and Brett Sawyer around for a few months to fill dates in the old Georgia territory in Atlanta and Ohio, and then all of a sudden, all of you guys disappeared around the same time. He asks, were you given a heads up before they gave you the boot in 1985, or did he just spring it on you guys that he was cutting ties with the Georgia talent? So what was your relationship like? Did you get along with Jim Crockett? Did he not like you? Did he just keep you guys around in order to fill those dates, the Georgia Territory dates? Oh, I never talked to Jim Crockett, but uh, when I was in a dress room at the Omni, when uh, Dusty came in representing Jim Crockett, and talked about uh, now there's going to be a new new sheriff in town, and uh, he said uh, Ronnie Garvin. You know, he's talking about the going to be a big change. He said Ronnie Garvin and Bob Roop have been here with Ole from you know, from the beginning. Not really. I brought Ole, I brought Ronnie in there uh, six months or so after I started. I brought Ronnie in there because he was still stuck with the Popos. We'll get into that, but um, <laughs> I brought Ronnie in there, and he was good. You know, Ronnie was a great talent. He was. Uh, you know, he did made some money for himself and for them. And Dusty says, so Bob Roop and Ronnie Garvin have stuck by Ole, so uh, they're going to be taken care of. 
And uh, the next week I got my bookings. I had three bookings. One of them was 400 miles each way, 400 mile drive, 800 mile trip. And uh, I worked against Johnny Weaver. I made 25 bucks. And what that was, it was uh, Dusty giving me my notice. Oh, okay. Uh, and he was saying, get out, you, you know, Bob, I'm not going to take care of you. I just said that to look good in front of the boys. But that's that's your that's the guy giving you your notice. I mean, he was knows. That I commonplace, was or I mean, had you experienced no. that before? Or heard tell of that before? Uh, not really. Now, I'm, this might sound like bragging, but it's not. Dusty knew I'd been a booker, and a book. One last thing a booker wants is to have a former booker anywhere around, because if things start to slow up or whatever, and they think, well. You know, why don't we, uh, you know, I can see Crockett going to Dusty and saying, you know, uh, business has been bad for, or bad for a few months now, or Ted Turner or somebody going and saying, they say, well, you know, Dusty, why don't we have Bob help you? And maybe Bob can come up with some new ideas or take yours and, 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 and augment them or whatever. Well, Dusty didn't want that. He didn't want that. So he, he wanted to get rid of me. And, and he did. I left, of course. I gave my notice. And that's just right after that that I went into the, into the thing with Sullivan. Right. So I wasn't thinking. I wasn't fully emotionally and psychologically where I should have been at the time. Because uh, I believed him. I thought that when he said he was going to take care of us, he would. But he didn't. So, uh, you know, that's, that's business. You know, life right. is tough. I don't, want, I don't want people to take care of me. Just be honest with me. You know, say, hey, and then it would have been very easy for him to arrange for me to go somewhere else. Uh, hey, Bob, I'd like to have you go down to Florida and got a spot for you down there and made a event or, you know, making good money. Uh, but arrange something. But I don't hold grudges. I don't I don't uh, I don't let it bother me. Quite frankly, I would have rather had he just told me, look, things have changed. Uh, you got to go. Uh, good luck. Whatever. That would have been fine. Well, if it but, makes uh, you feel any better, and I probably won't, but uh, it does appear that a few names do disappear right around the same time as you do, and uh, most of them were Georgia talent. So, and, and I, I hear what you're saying in regards to Dusty and your past experiences. Do you think you know he was just kind of cutting the uh, the ties with the talent that he didn't want around, not necessarily on a personal level, but maybe there were different issues. Maybe I see like. Your reasoning is because you had been a booker in the past. Obviously, you weren't really you really weren't really a troublemaker backstage during this run in Georgia. You only wouldn't have kept you around that long. But maybe somebody like a Buzz Sawyer could have been because he disappears around that time too. So it looks like Dusty was kind of cutting ties with uh, pretty much whomever he just didn't want to keep around here because he inherited that Georgia roster when uh, Crockett took over TBS. Well, uh, Dusty liked uh, people to put him over. You know, he liked to walk in and uh, you know, everybody was uh, ready to say, uh, hey, there he is, Big Dust, how you doing, and all that. And I didn't do that. I mean, I'd say hello, of course, but I, I wasn't, you know, this business is a work. Uh, you want to do your act on, you know, in the dressing room, that's fine, I mean, go ahead. But <laughs> I, I don't think I want to watch. I just do, <laughs> you know, I go out and I save my stuff for the ring. But, yeah, again, I don't know what what it was. I wasn't definitely wasn't a yes man for him, and and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people that work for him were the fact that working for him, working closely for him, you know, made you money. 
Um, but I have no problem at all with that. And if you, in a process of you making the money, you, and I'm not going to say kiss butt. I don't mean that at all. You have to, I don't even want to say suck up, but you have to acknowledge that Dusty is a big, big, big cheese uh, just by your attitude and how you act around him and uh, whatever, like the steady round of applause going on uh, silently. Then that's not a big deal if you're making fifteen dollars to $2,000 a week. I, and I don't, again, I don't have a problem with it. I don't think anybody had to suck up to him. I think it, but he did want guys that he considered his guys. And I wasn't one of them. So, and, and that's fine. I mean, that makes sense. I get what you're saying. You got to be one of the boys or at least one of Dusty's boys in that, in that, uh, specific situation. He is the booker after all a little kissing, butt doesn't ever hurt anything. not saying that's what you were referring to there. You even stated that it wasn't, but no, uh, that's, that doesn't sound like your personality. And, and, you know, it certainly didn't sound like Buzz Sawyer's either. (laughs) No, Buzz, Buzz was a nightmare. Buzz was a nightmare. Without Ole to handle Buzz, I don't know. I don't know how Dusty. Oh, I'm uh, sure we get whole, whole whole episode on Buzz Sawyer. I have a feeling. Well, I, <laughs> or, or I carried at least a, a very long segment. Anyway, uh, I'll just give a little teaser. I carried him from Atlanta to Knoxville in the backseat of my car. Passed out. Had to carry him out to the car. He was still messed up from the night before. Drove him all the way to Knoxville and waited till like. 10 minutes before his match, and then trotted him out there. I had a couple of guys who we managed to like walk him down to the ring and act like he we like he was hurt, uh, just so that we were gonna have to substitute his match. And so I wanted to make sure that people understood that he was hurt. It wasn't that he just you know showing up. So I, you know, and you think I wanted to take him all the way down there in the backseat of my car, <laughs> snoring and burping and farting and all that. No, I didn't. But, you know, that was the kind of things that, you know, you had to do. And, you know, we were talking about paying off what you do. You know, Buzz didn't last. You know, that behavior took him quick. He was his early 30s when he passed yeah, away. 32 so. or 33, something like that, unfortunately. Yeah. But you hear a lot of stories about the mad dog. I mean, certainly aptly named, that's for sure. So. We got all the questions. Well, no, we didn't get all the questions, in, but, we, but we got a ton of questions in, Bob. And we even got an extra Buzz Sawyer story at the end of the show. So win-win for me, and hopefully a win-win for all the listeners out there. I do apologize to those who wrote in, and we weren't able to get to every question, guys. But there will be an Ask Bob, too. We're going to make sure we cover the rest of the questions here and maybe even a few more. Uh, but, I just, you know, it was a fun time jumping around talking about everything from Maya Singh to Haystacks Calhoun and everything in between. So I appreciate you uh, wanting to do this, you know, for the holiday season, a little Christmas treat or a holiday treat, a present for everyone out there to just uh, have some of their questions answered. And hopefully everybody enjoyed uh, some of the stories here, whether it was Lex Luger in the cup of piss or whatever it may have been. I certainly <laughs> I certainly had a lot of fun here this week. So I appreciate you, Bob, doing this with us. Well, thank you, Ray. My pleasure. And uh, like I say, we're, we're a tag team at this, my friend. I appreciate it. That's cool. Just just give me the hot tag. I'll watch you do all the work. Because I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you certainly you, you certainly know gonna, how to tell a story. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, you know how to set them up, my friend. We make a good team, I think. I do my best. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's going to wrap it up here this week, guys. Remember, you can always follow Bob, friend Bob, on Facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. Always looking to hear from you there. He's going to share his anecdotes uh, from time to time. And you guys can also Follow me on Twitter, on X, at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade and Facebook.com 
slash wrestling grenade. We're looking forward to hearing from you as we continue on. Next stop, Bob, we go back to the San Francisco territory. Going to finish out your, your feud with Kevin Sullivan, and then we're going to talk all about the demise of your relationship with the promoter, Roy Shire. What really went down, what everybody ignores when they talk about that situation. There's a lot of facts out there that are just simply never discussed. In fact, I almost got into an argument with a, a listener, or maybe he's just an online lurker. I'm not really sure last week, but I try never to argue with people online. And uh, so I pulled myself out of that pretty quick, but he started stating opinions and, and hearsay that, you know, that's went around for years in regards to what happened there in San Francisco when you left town. And I started stating back facts, facts that are all over the internet. They're in books, they're online, all sorts of West Coast historians have discussed it. And uh, he kept telling me, well, that's your opinion. And I kept telling him, it's not my opinion. These are facts. He didn't want to hear it. And I realized where, where this was going. It was going nowhere. So I, <laughs> I stopped the conversation. But I look forward to getting into that with you so that we can set the record straight. And everybody has a very good idea of what really, went, what really happened there and what happened before that even uh, took place. Well, I tell you, uh, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts about the same thing. Right. I mean, if you, the facts about something are the facts, the dates, what happened, those are, those are the facts, not dream, not supposition. Those are the facts. And people got to agree on those because if that's what happened, that's what happened. Now, back just a second. I want to say thank you to uh, you out there for listening. Sharing these stories is, uh, is really heady stuff for me because uh, it's a way of being able to share my life and all the sacrifice that was made getting to where I'm sitting right here today. Uh, it becomes more and more worthwhile because I'm being paid back for it uh, and being able to share, share what happened and all the ups and downs with you. So thanks again for being there, folks. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, that wraps it up. The special holiday edition. Ask Bob anything here on the Wrestling Stoop. Bob, I want to thank you again for doing this. Thank you, Ray. All right, guys, it's going to wrap it up. We'll be back in uh, time just before the new year with another edition of the Wrestling Stoop, of course, with the legend himself, Bob Rube. Mm-hmm.